Hi, Flame. Hi, Ferret. Hi, Fandom. We would like to say congratulations to everyone for surviving the year that was March. Um, <laughs> whether we last hung out in episode three for Tumblr and Tropes or in this past weekend's special tipsy flaret chat, we're glad to be back together again for episode four. This episode is going to focus on Podfix, and we're particularly excited about it because it's a part of fandom Flame and I don't venture into very much. Thanks to Deech Animation for providing our amazing cover art this week. We'll also be sharing my chat with Fanish podcast host Alex Jamison, who is also a professional voice actress and a podficker. Then Flame and I will have a chat about the importance of finding joy in fandom and protecting it at all costs. And then we'll focus a little on the mechanics of writing and talk about points of view in fic. Our minis today include community talks, a visit from Professor Flame, who's going to talk a little about Sherlock Holmes' place in fandom history, and Marie's event forecast, which will be read by Only More Love once again. So let's get started. Alex, thank you so much for joining us. I'm thrilled to be here. So I know you as one of the four voices of the Fanish podcast, but I think that will be a new introduction to a lot of uh, Pod on the Suit listeners. So would you mind telling us a little bit about yourself? Sure. My name is Alex Jamison. I am a voice actor and in uh, the Stucky fandom, sometimes in Winter Shield um, and sometimes in Winter Widow, but MCU Marvel fandom. And I am one of four co-hosts on a podcast called Fanish. And what, how did you get into fandom then? A long, a long time ago. In a galaxy <laughs> far, far away? Unfortunately not. That would have been a better fandom to cop to. I was in the <laughs> Twilight fandom. <laughs> Listen, we all come here in our own paths. <laughs> um, and uh, I wrote, and I actually started podficking back then and I did not know that it was called I, as far as I remember my co-host Cleo who's Cleo for you too remembers it being called podficking but I did not but anyway I started back then I had some friends that were BNAs and um, did a couple of things that way and uh, but mostly wrote oh no wait I was also on a podcast back then I forgot about that <laughs> Whoops. So writing, podficking, and a podcast way back in the ancient times of the Twilight fandom. God, ancient, like 10 years ago is ancient times, though. It like, is ancient times. You know, fandom, it's all relative in fandom. Because Sherlock Holmes is the first published work that had fan fiction, as yeah. we know it, back in the 1800s. Right. Yeah. Um, but thinking about like, okay, we've been doing this forever, but also it moves so fast. Yeah, it's kind of incredible, that dichotomy. And it's endlessly interesting where people started and where they are now. Um, I, I'll, I'll never not want to talk about that. Well, good, because my question is, how do we go from Bella and Edward to Steve and Bucky? <laughs> because that's a uh, bit of a jump. It is a bit of a jump. I actually never liked Bella and Edward. I got into that fandom because I wanted an online writing community. Okay. Um, I had little kids, and I wanted desperately to get into um, a comm that I could get some feedback and feel like I was writing stuff and going in the direction I wanted to. And 
Um, and I'm glad I did. I I never ended up liking Bella and Edward. <laughs> Okay. Um, but it was Did a lot you of like fun. Anyone? Mm, um, I I I shipped Carlisle and Emmett, so okay. like it was a total rare pair, which you know maybe anyone would appreciate. I don't know, but um, yeah. So I liked writing them. I got you know, and the funny thing is, is that I wrote um, Bella and Edward. But I yeah, I, I don't have any. I I have no excuse. I guess well, that's no, I mean, the bottom line. I just find it fascinating. Like, I can't write people I don't like. And so I'm just fascinated by this, that you could do it as a discipline in a way. I find that, I find that really interesting. That's all. Yeah, I guess uh, I just always thought about who I really wanted. I mean, my end goal was I wanted to be published someday. Right. Um, And so I thought, well, I'm going to write, if I can write all, you know, a range of characters and... Um, make people interested then that'll be a good test and what's really funny is after I left that fandom I worked on a, um, a novel for a while it's my drawer novel that I wrote about 28,000 words of and I ended up quitting it because I hated them so much <laughs> the irony is not lost on any oh of us oh my god the hero and the heroine just like I hated their guts they were so boring and I was like why am I writing this I was writing it you know I was, I was kind of copycatting and I was trying to write um, you know, straight up fluffy romance genre, which it's not my bag. I don't like reading it. Why was I trying to write it? <laughs> that's a great question. But that's even a good point for all, like for all of us who are in, who are not try necessarily trying to be published, but are creating or reading. Like, why do you create things that don't bring you joy? Like, right. Do, and what I, is that impetus? And looking back on it, it was because I wanted to be published. And I thought, well, I think a lot of people think this. If I do this, I mean, I'm capable. I know that I can write. Of course I can do this. I'm just going to knock out a romance um, novel and I'm going to sell it. Well, of and course it's not that you were simple. introduced to the romance publishing industry, which is I, yeah, I didn't one even of Dante's circles of hell. And we'll cover that later. But yeah, like it's it's a lot. Character development is, is a challenge. It just is. So, Well, in the, in the little parts that I liked that I wrote I, were not serving this book that I was trying to force them into. I was trying oh, to shove all of this stuff together that I liked, but also make it palatable for people that wanted chirpy writing. They wanted, it was so trite. Um, and so, oh, you know, like the girl would get up in the morning and dance around in the sun and make finger guns at a calendar. It was terrible. It was terrible. It's um, interesting though, like it's... <laughs> I'm just gonna we're gonna move on from that but I, like in thinking about what writing for certain things like that's one of I can see why you really enjoy the freedom of fandom then because the beauty of tags and and tropes and things is like this is what I love if somebody else loves it they'll find it great yeah and that's a really different ball game than monetized storytelling yeah and I used to think, I used to have the attitude that if you were a good writer and you did well in fandom, that of course you were going to try to be published. And a long time ago in that old fandom, I had a friend and she was not interested in being published at all. She loved fandom and she loved writing fanfic. Utterly, completely. And had no desire to go any further than that. And that is completely valid. Not actually, that's ridiculous. It sounds ridiculous. It's not just valid you should celebrate that knowing yourself and knowing what you want is a great thing. 
Yeah, I completely agree. Because she got the most joy out of it. It was a hobby for her. She loved it. She didn't have to answer to anybody. She didn't have to make any deadlines. She didn't have to deal with things that made her uncomfortable. She wrote for herself and for her audience to a certain extent. But it was limited in a way, and it was always joyous. Always. Yeah, and if there is a gift that I could give, I mean, I've been in fandoms of various kinds since I was in middle school. If I could go back and give Younger Flame like a gift, it would be don't do this if it's not bringing you joy. Like you get to walk away from fandoms that don't bring you joy. You don't have this is a this is supposed to be fun and it's okay. Yeah, don't we have enough things in life that do not bring us joy that we must do? There is no out. You have to do it. You have to get up. You have to go to work. You have to clean the toilet. You have to pick up the dog shit. Yeah. You have to. So when so you're choosing you well, to do something, yeah. yeah, it should just be joyous. Completely. Seriously. It should so just be obviously, joyous. So obviously talking gives you joy. So you were on a podcast <laughs> forever and podficking and things. What? So in the, as you kind of like left that drawer novel, I'm going to assume, and you joined us in mm-hmm. Marvel, did mm-hmm. you start with podficking? Did you, how did that kind of work? Um. Yeah, I guess I kind of just, um, lurked around and read for a while and then I decided like oh maybe I can get back into this and in the meantime you know I continued to do voice acting and there was a you know for a long time I did uh, recorded audiobooks produced audiobooks and um then I just took a break uh so I lurked in fandom for a while and then I decided like no maybe I can do podficking again and I chose a really short, um, G-rated fic and reached out to the author and asked them what they thought, and they gave me permission, and I was kind of just took off from there. And it certainly has nothing to do with kudos or uh, hits or comments because I I didn't get any for a very long time, and still don't get very many. Um, but it brings me a lot of joy to do it. It's a way for me to honor the author and um, the material that they've written and to be part. It's my way of giving um, back to fandom and everything that it's given me. That's beautiful. So how do you choose the works that you podfic now? Um, I have to love them and then I start to hear it as I'm reading it. Okay. Um, that's, the, that's the first thing for me. Um, and then oftentimes I will read something and really enjoy it. But once I, um, if I think I'm interested enough in it to want to do it, oh, and also I'm a total ball sack. I, um, I don't do long fic. <laughs> I don't okay. want to listen to myself. I don't want to edit it. I don't want to put it together. So like, you know, the, on the outside, the, the highest number of a fic that I'll record is somewhere around, I don't know, 6K maybe, something like that. It's ridiculously small. Um, so I'll decide, like, I really like it, I want to do it. But oftentimes I will start to read it, and it doesn't work well, for me anyway, read aloud. There's something about the style of writing that doesn't work. Um, I just, you know, I don't know how exactly to explain it, but it just doesn't mesh with with me and my style and my delivery. And so sometimes I really love things, but I don't record them because uh, it just isn't going to work. 
And then um, sometimes if I really love a fic, I won't record it, even though it would be a lot of fun to do it because I won't be able to, I can't read things again once I've recorded them. Oh, okay. And so selfishly, I um, don't want to give that up. That's understandable. I want to have it in my bookmarks and my favorites and go back and read it over and over again whenever I feel like it. And it's just, I rob myself of that when I record it. <laughs> that's, that's fair. I mean, fandom's about joy. So why would you steal yours yeah. just for ours? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. So how long does the 6K, like, I don't know a lot about sound production. Um, listeners will know that, that Ferret does all of our um, magic tech stuff. So what, how long does it take you to do this kind of process? Well, you know, I'm sure Ferret is way better at this than I am. Um, although we use the same DAW, we both use Reaper, and I'm pretty good at Reaper, but um, I'm not overly great at controlling my breath work. Okay. Um, and I'm a stickler for that. So I will leave some breaths in, but some breaths, I get annoyed and I want to take them out. So I don't really, I can't really give you, you know, it's a thousand... Okay, it takes me 10 minutes to record and then it takes me this long to edit I, I, I can't really and plus I have ADD so I I kind of start doing it <laughs> then I drop it yeah, yeah and it's not like I, you I don't have, have other life things going on yeah, I was just curious right. if you had a formula that's all no I don't have a formula I, I don't and because I don't have a deadline with most things unless I'm doing it for someone's birthday which I have done on occasion or a spe something special Otherwise, I don't have um, a deadline, and I also oftentimes will work, um, commission an artist to do a cover, and so that's factoring in, too, because they give me the cover art, and then I add the credits to it and mess around with that. I don't know. It's, it's a long, way longer process than it would be. Um, it's not linear, I guess. I'm sure Ferret does things in a very linear way, which is exactly what I do on Fanish. So when I edit Fanish, we record for some time around an hour, it probably takes me three, four hours to edit and get done and dusted. So okay. maybe that's a better example for you. Oh, well, I mean, I was just curious about the creative process. So. Oh, that, yeah. Sorry. <laughs> don't apologize. Sorry, it's sorry if truth. I went off on a tangent. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, tangents are welcome and wanted here. But I am curious if there is. I, I think if I'm scrolling through your AO3 right, you've only recorded Stephen Bucky. Is that correct? No. Um, no, I'm missing I, something. Okay. Yeah. I I have recorded Bucky and Clint for um, a fandom friend, Vodka Auntie CB, also known as Kangofu CB. And then I did uh, a great little fic from A. Geno called uh, When You Know the One You Love, which is Malik from the Shadowhunters fandom. Oh, okay. The Those are the Cassandra Clare books, question mark? Yeah. Okay, great. Okay, yes. Sometimes I know things outside my own fandom. It's very impressive. <laughs> oh, and you know, I also did a Stucky that had um, had uh, Edna Mode from The Incredibles. <laughs> Are you serious? That's amazing. <laughs> I love Which it. I'd always, I, it was a great opportunity because I'd always wanted to do an Edna impersonation. So I had a lot of fun doing it. It's absolutely ridiculous. I do not, I'm not saying that I'm a great you know, expert on Edna Mode's voice, but it was a lot of fun. Oh my gosh. What's the title of that one? That is dress for the job you want. Of course it is with Edna. Yeah, it is. 
It was great. She just totally runs them up one side and down the other. And it was such a fun fic to read. And it was hilarious to record. Oh, my God. I'm sure. I'm adding that to my list. That's amazing. So <laughs> so speaking of people you had fun doing, I hear a rumor that you will not record oh Thor. Is that correct? No, that's not true. I have recorded Thor before, but my co-host, Kashmir, wants me to record longer, okay. smuttier um, Thunder Shield fix that re- requires a lot of Thor. And so, um, you know, Thor, brief bursts of Thor, I feel pretty <laughs> capable of doing. Brief bursts but... of Thor needs to be a band name. <laughs> yeah, that, that sounds like a song. <laughs> brief bursts of Thor. <laughs> so... But to do long, you know, lots of dialogue and, um, you know, tender, going from tenderness to, you know. So yeah. I've done Thor's voice in a couple of really funny, short um, podfix and really enjoyed it. But I have to get him really good to do a longer smutty one. Same thing with Loki. You know, somebody wanted me to do one with Loki in it. And, um, you know, I can do Hiddleston in little snippets but to do a long thing where they're having a conversation it's just i have to be better at it i can't be torn apart in the middle of a long pod fic because my loki sucks balls you know what loki sucks balls (laughs) there's just a lot i meant that in a complimentary way not in a slagging him off kind of way i just meant that in shipping him with thor anyway that went again off the rails it's okay. I mean, like I was making jokes about juggling balls earlier and I was just like, and not Steve or Tony's. Hey, so this is the kind of space we're in. Yeah. Um, so clearly though, there are like, you, you read pretty widely within Stucky. I know you're pretty voracious. So yeah. what kind of fix right now is are really like, what are you reading right now that you love? Um, I'm reading a few different things that I can't stop thinking about. Those are the best One of them, yeah, right? Those are really the only kind. (laughs) The first thing I'm going to wreck is uh, Mandalorian and his child series, which is fantastic, by Yatstar. It's not complete. It's 12 works so far. 33K rated G. It's just sweet. Very, very well written. Um, Lovely father-son dynamic but also a lot of interesting interactions with other characters and adventure it's outstanding second uh that i would suggest is like it's the only thing i'll ever do by how do you sleep stucky rated e 22k currently chapter three out of four it's uh very good and the last is Good Boy, which is part of a big series by Give Me Some More Sugar, rated Mature 2E, currently 39K, Stucky, and the most incredibly fuck hot Daddy Steve. That's all I'm going to say. I did. I did. I did. Well, that's really, I mean, we could talk forever about fandom i think we about all about daddy could, steve 
and also specifically about Daddy Steve. Maybe we'll bring you back for a Daddy Steve special in oh, our yes, later please. on kink exploration segments. Oh, please, sir. May I have another? <laughs> but in the meantime, <laughs> is there anything else you'd like to say now about the kind of role of podficking within the greater fandom? Hmm. I don't. I don't know. It's difficult to say because a lot of people don't listen to Podfix for a number of different reasons. Uh, they don't process information well auditorially. They don't enjoy that. Um, they have hearing issues. Uh, if their English is not their first language, it's more difficult for them uh, to listen instead of read it. I think that Podfic is a really great way for people that don't write to contribute to fandom. And it does not have to be perfect. I think everyone knows that, that Podfix, because there's such a range of people involved in it. It doesn't have to be perfect. It just has to be something that you love and that you want to record. And that you want people to have the opportunity to hear um, or experience in a different way. And I think that's fantastic. And I think, I think that's really... a really beautiful reflection of fandom in general. Like, it doesn't have to be perfect. There is no perfect. No, there's no perfect. There never has been. There never will be. It, 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 that is the nature of fandom. That we're making things the way that we want them to be. Whether it's written or recorded or art. Um, or supporting creators, which is yeah, commenting an and kudosing part. and cheerleading is just as much creative and important in the process as as it's the huge. stuff we consider creating, quote unquote. It's huge, and I think it's very undervalued. That's, You're correct. Uh, people people want to say things like, "Oh, all I do is no." That's not all you do. That's not all you do. There's so many ways to participate in fandom, and the fact is, is that. You know, maybe you can write, but you can't even hold a pencil straight to to sketch something. Or maybe you're a fantastic artist, but you aren't interested in writing. Or you love the way you sound when you record things, but you can't do anything else. Well, it's not anything else. You can do that, and you can contribute that way and share your joy in the fandom that way. We're all so different, and everything everyone does brings something so special that it's never going to be wrong. Ever. And that is a beautiful note to end on. So Alex, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. I think it's fantastic that you guys have a new podcast and I cannot wait to listen. points that Alex brought up during your interview was the idea of writing things you don't necessarily love just as a matter of discipline. And when we balance that with the other idea she brought up, that we all need to pursue joy, it's an interesting conversation about how we each pursue joy in fandom, which isn't necessarily the same for everyone. So we wanted to take a second to unpack each of those things for us personally, and then also have a think about how you can interact with joy as well. For me, part of embracing joy is also embracing the growth of my craft, not to sound like a super pretentious master of fine arts student, but it is an important thing for me to keep challenging myself 
and growing whatever that looks like for me at the time. I completely reject the idea that what we do is just fandom, that it's practice for real writing, quote unquote. I not, almost nothing gets me angrier than when someone derides fan fiction as universally junk. When I've been a reader for most of my life and have read many, many published, professionally published fics that are completely junk and read some absolutely stunningly gorgeous fanfic. I wanna chase this for as long as it brings me joy and as long as it brings joy to other people. And part of the bringing joy to both myself and other people is to continually grow. For me, again, this is for me. So in part of being the best that I could be, it's using betas and it's pushing myself to use new writing techniques and even try some new ships. I, in the nine months I've been in fandom, I've tried to play with rare pairs quite a lot. I just finished the rare pair Big Bang trying to kind of keep thinking about different characters from different perspectives. I also love that I write Steve and Tony and Bucky in all of their various iterations and like how I write Tony in Winter Iron feels different to me than how I write Tony in, St in Stony Fic. It just is. And I love bringing out those different sides of them. Um, but I know I write, I'm pretty sure anyway, I write more ships than you do, Ferret. So does any of that kind of resonate with you? Yeah, I'm open to a lot of ships, but I don't necessarily write them all. I read a lot more than I write. And a lot of times the idea I get comes with the ship that I want for it. And obviously my default just kind of ends up being stony. <laughs> for me, one of the joys in fandom isn't finding new ships. I don't seek out rare pairs or, or try and create those shippy feelings about characters. It either happens to me or it doesn't, and I just let that river carry me along. <laughs> uh, for me, my, my joy is found primarily in the friendships and connections with people that I've formed in fandom. And the reason that I'm still in this fandom is because of the people, absolutely, and because of the connections I've made and the friendships I've formed. But I wrote a lot for school for a long time. I did a lot of creative writing. I did a lot of academic writing. I do writing in my work life. And a lot of it is about seeking as close to perfection as you can get. And for me in fandom, I'm not particularly interested in getting better. It's not one of my goals. I'm not like, oh, every fic has to be better than the fic before, or I'm going to read books on writing advice and try and improve. I don't feel like for me, that's what this space satisfies. I like telling the story that I want to tell. And that's where the big joy comes from. I have an idea. I want to get it out. I've made jokes before about being quantity over quality. And it's true in the way I interact with my own writing as well. I don't want to obsess about perfection. I'm already too perfectionist in other aspects of my life. I'm too pedantic. I can get obsessed about details. For me, that's not what this kind of writing is about. It's about freedom. I'm comfortable with posting something that I do not think is perfect. And part of that I had to cultivate. It takes a little bit of practice, but that's what brings me joy. I also get a lot of joy out of numbers. <laughs> I think Ashes and I talked about that a little bit when she was here, but we both love numbers. I love seeing cool numbers. I love watching stats change. I love calculating percents of things. I like looking at tags and seeing those percents. Uh, and so with that in mind, I like to set goals for myself that are number-based. I set word count goals and I like to meet those. They don't have to be good words, but I like to reach a certain number of words. And that possibly also to get into some therapy probably gives me control in an area of my life that you know, I do have complete control over. It gives me something, it gives me something quantitative that I can strive for. And lastly, I like how fandom has me try new things. There's so many 
there's so many experiences and conversations and kinks and tropes I never would have experienced otherwise, but it's such a big, wide world that I just love seeing what's out there. That makes so much sense to me, like, especially the idea about creating things like we are perfectionists in very different ways. And we, I don't, I'm not as pedantic as you, <laughs> yeah. which if that has not come out to listeners, you can in, <laughs> hang, you hang out in our discord server and you'll hang out the discord out. server. It will come pretty clear pretty quickly. But I, in my offline writing life, it is a lot about really clearly expressing nonfiction writing. Mm-hmm, and yeah. so in this way, like what I don't get pedantic about is necessarily like out of character stuff because I I create the sandbox. This is probably why I like writing AUs a lot more than I like writing canon. Mm. But I like creating the sandbox. And how would this human with this bag of history that we've been given by canon, how would they react to this setting? And how would they react to the what if question I've asked myself? I am not very excellent at the really, really detailed pedant of grammar for a whole host of reasons, including that half of my schooling is in the UK and half of my schooling is in the United States. And I just get confused as to which one I'm supposed to care about sometimes. But I really, 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 like when you said that the huge part of the joy is the friendship, you're right. And I don't know why that didn't, why I didn't immediately think of that, (laughs) but Probably because I have, uh, I'm dead inside, but. Well, I think there's also, there's two like um, universes to fandom as well. There's the private personal universe. That's a relationship between you and what you're creating. And then even entirely separate from that, because you don't have to be a creator at all to participate in the social aspect of fandom. Yeah. And I was so, I fell so deep so quickly. And I think we talked about this in our discord chat, like fandom is not necessarily who you know, but it's how much you interact with it in some way. Like, Mm -hmm. that's a really clumsy way to say it. But I, it's why I love Discord over some other stuff because it feels more communal. I got to know more people quickly and I feel more seen than I do in a lot of other spaces in my life. Yeah, I think that feeling like you've got people you can go to who know you, even if it's just the you that you present online in this context it's still a connection that it's just a valuable social experience for a lot of people in fandom. Yeah. And I love how on any given time of day, I'm talking to people from anywhere in the world. And the other cool thing about that is when you have those connections with people, you're forming those connections, you get to see the massive complicated Venn diagram of all the different ways that people in fandom find their joy. Because even just our two stories are different, but it's, It's so broad how people relate to fandom and what they get out of it. And I'd say everyone's joy is different. And that's one of the beauties of it, to be frank. Like if every, if we all found joy in the same things, it would be a monolith, which wouldn't, which would not reflect humanity. And one of the best parts of fandom is that it reflects humanity. It is humanity, but because it's humanity, we do have a tendency to get territorial about rightness sometimes and so the downside to fandom being this wide rambling thing is that people can treat each other poorly yeah it can be difficult to look at somebody else's joy that they're getting and it's not your joy and if you can't relate to that there can be an urge to tell them why they're doing it wrong or how they might get joy better if they did it the way that suits you 
But I think the primary goal for us when we're seeking our joy in fandom should be first do no harm, then do you. So as long as you're not hurting anyone, go out and find the method of engaging with fandom that brings you joy. We talk about Discord a lot, but if it doesn't bring you joy, that's not the space you want to be in. If you're the kind of person who wants to spend all your fandom time on DreamWith, then go for it. That's your joy. And if part of your joy is not necessarily interacting with people at all, then don't. Nothing of this is mandatory, I guess is something I would say, really what it comes down to. Yeah, lurking is valid. Being a consumer is valid. Yeah, and being being a writer who posts on AO3, never responds to comments because you don't know what to do with them, and doesn't really interact with anybody is also valid. Everybody, everybody who's here is part of fandom no matter how they're interacting with it. And that person's joy isn't taking away from the joy from the person who's on Discord every day, all day, talking to everyone, making all the friends, friending everybody, doing collabs. There's, it's not mutually exclusive. Yeah, joy is not a pie. We're not gonna run out of it. <laughs> and on that, on sort of the flip side of that, if the way that someone else is finding their joy bothers you, if when scrolling through the ship tag, that's your favorite, there's another tag that upsets you, then you can block that. There are tools. We'll link some scripts you can add to AO3 in our show notes for how you can better curate your AO3 experience. If there's a person on Discord, you don't want to read their messages, you can block them. You can mute channels. You can mute servers. You can also take a break. You can disconnect. You can leave a whole fandom. You can leave a server. You can disconnect with a certain person that you don't want to talk to anymore. These are all options. Ultimately, you have to curate your own fandom experience. And that includes curating how you find your joy and the people you're finding joy with. And perhaps there are times where you encounter something that makes your eyebrow raise and you can use it as an opportunity to cultivate some curiosity. Why does this work for so-and-so? Or would it maybe work for me? Or, you know, I've never read this tag and it's kind of eh, but I'll give it a shot. You give it a shot and you go, oh no, this is a no. And you walk away and no harm, no foul. You give it a shot and go, oh, this actually kind of works for me. There's limits within that, obviously. If you are somebody who is a survivor of sexual violence, spending time in the rape non-con tag might not be a super great time for you. And there might be other times that it is and it's really cathartic. What happens in how you cultivate your experience in that all is that it's personal and also that it evolves. So when I first joined fandom, I didn't really know what to do with either MPreg or ABO, not only as a reader, but as somebody who kind of thinks about the larger social implications of art and how we create and engage with art. Those two categories, I could not square the circle as it were. And then a writer I really loved, who also happens to be my co-host here, I followed <laughs> through to an Ooh, ABO tag. That? <laughs> oh my gosh, stranger. I followed, I followed a fic to an ABO tag and I was like, oh, I already trust this author. I already trust that I love how the stories are structured and the dialogue is written. So let me add this one other thing and see if I like it too. And I've done that with some other stuff. I've done that with some kinks that I've gone to and go, you know what? No, this isn't for me, but blessings, enjoy this, rock on. I beta things that I don't love reading. I beta actually a lot of things I don't love reading because I've got one particular person that I beta for who writes stuff all out of my comfort zone all the time. <laughs> but it's fascinating to, to just be able to go, good for her, not for me. And that's fine. 
again, a caveat, if something is legitimately harmful to you emotionally, leaving is a valid option. That first do no harm applies to yourself as well. Yeah, no one needs to be Steve and Tony here. We have enough martyrs in this fandom. We don't need more. <laughs> so that being said, we'd love to know what brings you joy in fandom. We know there's a lot of people out there listening that have completely different joy experiences from ours. So send us a message, uh, leave a comment. Uh, you can send us a stony secret if you want it to be anonymous and let us know. Maybe this is something you've struggled with. Maybe you've had to leave a fandom because you couldn't find your joy or you've had to disconnect with a person whose joy was so different from yours. You couldn't communicate with them comfortably. Or maybe you are wonderful at curating your fandom experience. You've got scripts upon scripts. You've got a blacklist. You've got a block list. And every day you only see those things that bring you joy. We want to hear about that too. So get in touch, hit us up on social media and let us know. How do you create joy? For the first time on Creator Corner, we're going to talk about mechanics, this time point of view. But before we dive into that, I wanted to talk briefly about something that's going to be relevant every time we talk about grammar or punctuation or rhetorical devices, and that's the idea of prescriptivism versus descriptivism. So I was raised by um, an editor indexer who thought that grammar was wonderful and raised me to feel the same way. And I love grammar and that's going to come up a lot on the pod, I'm sure. Uh, you're going to hear me wax poetic about apostrophes and stuff like that. But that kind of grammar structure we call prescriptivist. It's a prescription. It's telling you how you're supposed to do something. Uh, it's an instruction. And the purpose of that is to make a piece as accessible as possible. If we have standard grammar rules that we all agree on, then when we read something, we can process it exactly the way the author intended it to be processed, or at least make our best attempt at getting there. But I also have a degree in linguistics, and linguistics is descriptivist. It doesn't tell you how something should be done. Linguistics isn't about right grammar or what the correct accent is or anything like that. It just looks at the world, it looks at the language we have, and it describes the way that we're using it. So words dying off and disappearing, linguistics doesn't care. It's just gonna record that. New words coming into existence, I have had people say like, as a linguist, doesn't it bother you that the kids are using eat these days? And it's like, no, that's wonderful. That's how language survives and evolves and changes and becomes this amazing thing that we can dedicate an entire field of study to. But when we talk about grammar on the pod, we're going to get prescriptivist. And I always feel like there's sort of two sides to me, the prescriptivist and the descriptivist. And both are super important and um, play a big role in what I create and how I create it. So when we dive into this, you're going to hear a lot of right and wrong, and you're going to see examples that we'll post as well that, that will have right and wrong. And we want to make sure that everybody understands that when we're being prescriptivist like this, the goal is to give you the tools that you can use to really understand how your work is being processed by the people that are reading it, what they're understanding, what your commas are saying, what your apostrophes are saying, so that you can look at those and make judgment calls as an artist 
about when you want to use those rules accurately and when you want to say fuck it and ignore them completely because that is valid too but i think the more you know the better educated you are on these topics with the more confidence and the more power you have to use those tools to make your work say exactly what you want it to say to as many people as possible. So that's gonna be our goal with these grammar or mechanic-based creator corner pieces. And today we are going to start with point of view. There are so many elements in plotting a fic in particular, and which is when we're kind of talking about structure like this, it's a little bit more of the rhetorical things that Ferret mentioned earlier. I think a lot of times they come so naturally that we don't think consciously about them. And one of those is the point of view of the characters that we give. So I always write in third person past tense, for instance, because it feels the most natural to me. And I read a ton of books in first person, but for some reason that I can't quite articulate, um, I don't like reading fix in first person. And it could be because we're all sharing these characters and I like, I don't want to be in your version of their head. I'm not sure but I would never write in first person. The differences between first, second, and third person is only the tip of the iceberg and things to consider when thinking about point of view. So in an effort to help us all be a little more intentional with our writing, we're going to address some of those things today. But first of all, you threw out a lot of terms already, so let's review the basics. Um, what do we mean when we say third person, first person? So first of all, first person. First person is when a story is written with I, so I went to the store, I petted the dog, that would be first person. The narrator is the person who's, whose head you're in, the I person, whoever that may be. It's not intended to be the reader, but it puts the reader really, really, really close inside the character's head. So it's a very, very tight place to be with that character. Second person is probably the, almost certainly the least used um, not just in fic writing, but in all creative writing. It can be used to great effect, but it's pretty rare. Second person is when you use you. So you went to the store, you pet the dog. It's a very unique approach to creative writing that certainly has a flavor to it that I will say a lot of people do find unpleasant to read or at least challenging to read. Again, it's hard to articulate exactly why it makes people uncomfortable. I think there's a sort of, it because it's also the structure we use for imperative tense. So when we're telling somebody what to do, there's sort of a challenge to it, perhaps. Like you do this, that just gets our back up a little bit. I'm not sure that's just my, my own personal musings, but that is second person. Third person is definitely the most common point of view for fic and probably also for uh, other forms of creative fiction as well. Third person is when you say he or Steve or Tony. So Steve walked to the store, Tony pet the dog, um, he likes that car, that is third person. And the fourth point of view that you can write is omniscient, often shortened to omni. Omniscient as a word means all knowing and that's the case with this POV. And uh, here's where you find out that I kind of lied to you. Ferret! Okay, look, it's easiest to identify POV based on the grammatical structure of I versus you versus he, but in truth, that's not actually what POV really means when we're talking about constructing a story. It's so much more than that. POV, more broadly, is the answer to the question, where is the narrative lens? And omni is what makes us realize that we have to dive deeper than just using the grammatical clues. 
I'm going to use video games as an example for a bit. And I know that won't work for everyone, but it's a little easier than movies. Though we can also talk all day about which POV various movies are in. We're going to start with first person. There are a lot of first person video games. These are games where the camera is inside the main character's head, looking out of their eyes. So games like Halo, Overwatch, and Half-Life. You can generally look down and see your own hands or your body, your feet, but you can't see your own face because the camera is your face. These games are booming in VR right now because with added body movement, you can feel like you really are the character. Third person is also very popular in video games. These would be games like uh, Uncharted, Tomb Raider, or Assassin's Creed. The camera only follows one character. You can't pull the camera away and watch another character or watch two characters at once, but you can see the whole of that main playable character as if the camera is hovering over them or even following them like a GoPro on a selfie stick stuck to their head. Second person would be very challenging to do in a game. I thought about it a lot, but second person in some ways is an outlier in that it's a narrative style and a grammatical structure, but it somewhat struggles to answer the question of where the camera is. It's also not very common. So I'm going to leave, leave this here, but I can think of some games like maybe some dating sims or perhaps Oregon Trail at times that use a second person narrative to involve you in the story. I don't think we can really dive deeply into that concept right now. If you wanna think about second person in terms of a camera, think about a webcam, that image of you when you're having a video talk with someone and in the corner there's that little video of you. That's kind of the closest I can get to with that. Omniscient is like playing The Sims. You can move the camera around anywhere within the confines of the world you're playing in. You can see all the characters, interact with any of them, and if one character leaves a room, the camera can stay in the room with the remaining character or it can leave with the first character. This leads me into a sidebar on close versus distant. Any of the four POV options can be either close or distant. This is not a grammatical choice at all. It's a narrative and rhetorical choice. Close puts the camera so deep inside the character's head that you feel what they're feeling. An example in video games would be games that add grayed out screens or flashes of red and the sound of a pounding heart when you're injured. In fiction, close would be something like, Tony felt heat rush through his veins, every hair standing on end. Or I held the wand in my hand and could feel it thrumming with power, my stomach twisting with nerves. The narrative tells the reader not just what the POV character is doing, but also what they're thinking and feeling, both emotionally and physically. Distant, which is also sometimes called limited, pulls the camera back. It describes what is visible from, a, from the place where the camera is positioned, but it doesn't add anything internal that the character is thinking or feeling. This would be something like, Steve made his way to the kitchen, his footsteps loud as they echoed through the empty room or I followed the long winding path for over an hour before I finally came to a bright red door standing between two tree stumps. It's important to note that while I'm giving single sentence examples, POV is a choice you make for the whole part of the story, be it a chapter or a scene or the entire story. So a distant third person would be that distant for the entire story, or at least that entire section of particular POV. So how does close and distant relate to Omni? You can have both in Omni too. I would say, think about the difference between playing The Sims and playing, say, SimCity. In Close, you can dive into each character's head, know what they're thinking and feeling. The way you can click on a Sims character and it will tell you which needs they need filled most. You follow them as closely as close third. You get pounding hearts and love and joy and terror and hair standing on end. 
what makes it omni isn't how close or distant it is. It's the freedom for that camera at any point to leave that character and follow or dive into another. With distant omni, we can see everything all the characters are doing, everything they can see and interact with, and the camera can follow anyone anywhere, but their heads and bodies are sealed shut, so we still get that distance. Closeness is a scale. It's a spectrum, not a binary. And it's normal to gently zoom in and out with a subset of that scale. It can be jarring to do sharp cuts or to have a lot of close and then jump distant or vice versa. So I caution you to be intentional, not just with which POV you choose, but with your closeness or depth as well. So we're talking about POV character a lot, but also narrative voice. Are those different things? Is the character a narrator or do you need another narrator? Can you unpack a little bit more what narrative voice is versus POV character? All right, so that kind of brings us back out of video games and puts us back squarely into writing. So what is narrative voice? Well, it's the voice of the prose of your piece as opposed to the voices in the dialogue. In practice, that means what are the rhythms of speech that the prose has? What references does it make? Metaphors, how flowery or simple is it? Narrative voice is inextricably tied to your POV because your primary POV choice and your depth of POV will govern how your narrative voice should be structured as well. A very close narrative voice uses turns of phrase, references, and pacing that the character would use. If we're close in Steve's head, in first, third, or omni, the prose won't make a simile that compares someone to, say, Cher, most likely. What are the odds Steve knows who Cher is, or at least knows her cultural presence well enough to be able to compare somebody to her? He'd be more likely to compare, use a comparison with, say, Clark Gable. In close POV, using the character's voice as a narrative voice, i.e. the voice of the prose of that part of the story, can help make it feel even closer and more true to the character. But when we pull back and look at distant POVs, we have a choice. A distant POV can still be told in the character's voice, but sometimes that can be at odds with the lack of internal detail. If it sounds like the story is Tony telling you something that happened or is currently happening to him, why wouldn't he know how he felt, how he what he was thinking, how his body felt? So oftentimes with distant, you'll have a separate narrative voice. This can just be the voice of the author. It often is. It's most people's sort of default. They write the way that they talk. But it can also be a narrator who's given a specific tone and a style and a rhythm all their own. A really popular example of a really strong narrator voice would be Lemony Snicket in A Series of Unfortunate Events. There's a very strong narrative voice, but it's not one of the characters the camera follows. He's a separate character and he has his own way of talking and it comes through in the prose instead of in any dialogue. In movies, plays, and TV shows, you also sometimes get a narrator who's a character like Lemony Snicket who comes in and tells you things that are happening in the story. The narrator is often omniscient, and in the case of the new Good Omens TV show, this is taken very literally as the narrator is God herself. And sometimes this is used to comedic effect, like that meme where the speaker is contradicted immediately by the narrator, like, Ferret, I am going to bed early tonight. Narrator, she did not, in fact, go to bed early that night. <laughs> yeah, and that comes from Arrested Development, because... Oh, so does it. Yeah, Ron Howard narrates the show and very clearly thinks the Bluth family is as ridiculous as we think they are. Okay. So it, it like that kind of like, she did not in fact do that is it really became popular meme wise from Arrested Development. Okay, that's interesting. Yeah, so that's a really strong narrative voice. So people, you could see how if you translated that 
to writing and had a narrator say contradicting things that the character said. That makes the narrator their separate character. And it also gives the narrative voice a very strong presence in the story. So what about when POVs and narratives change within a story? Like you say to pick one and stick with it. But I know personally, like as you were talking, I was like, I don't do that. I don't pick one <laughs> and stick with it. That doesn't happen. My favorite structure is alternating POV. And I don't quite know where this would fit in what you're talking about, to be honest. So maybe we could talk this out a little and help me help the listeners in a way. So like, for instance, I was just writing a chapter of my big while you were sleeping work right now, which is in the scene, I needed both Steve and Bucky and Tony to tell me what they were thinking, to tell the audience what they were each thinking about the same set of circumstances. So I would like launch a narrative, something, you know, launch the narrative in Tony's point of view. And then I would put like a, I have like a line break and then I have Bucky's and then I have another line break. So I'm really clear to break up the scene so that you aren't like jarred, but hopefully maybe you will be, people can <laughs> complain. But it was important to me that we know how all three of those men are thinking about this one event. Yeah. So that would, that's like, <laughs> we've already established, we've got the grammatical structure of point of view, we've got the rhetorical structure of point of view, we've got narrative voice, and now we're also adding another one, which I would say we could call story structure. So within the structure of the story, you can break the story down into chapters or scenes or even little snippets, and as long as you have clear dividing lines, we would call that alternating POV to jump between two characters or multiple characters at these points where we have dividing lines. So that's like yet another layer when it comes to structuring a story and another thing that we consider, do I tell the whole thing in one POV? Do I alternate? And if you're thinking about alternating, you have a choice between using omniscient as your POV or choosing a different one, say third close, which is most common for fan fiction and alternating so you get that added layer of what other people are thinking. So in almost all of my long fix, I alternate POVs and I do it either by sections or by chapters, but it like, I don't think I can go over 2K being in one person's head at a time because my question is always what is the other character feeling? Oh yeah. And I can't, if I'm writing a Steve, I can't talk about what Tony's feeling. It's an interesting question because it also, when you're talking about like the interplay of the actual narrative, the story, and the voice there, switching POV really changes things because if you write an entire story from one perspective, you do only get that character's perspective. Sometimes I can add things like tension because we don't know what the other character's thinking and we don't know if they feel the same way or how they've interpreted an argument or something like mm -hmm. that. Whereas with alternating POV, it can add a different kind of tension maybe because we both know they are feeling the same way and if they would just talk, that kind of thing. <laughs> your words, gentlemen. Yes, I know. Yeah. The day, no, Flame, the day they start using their words is the day I don't have anything to write about anymore. So... Oh, but That's the good awesome. news is canon is closed and they never did, so we can just keep going. <laughs> it's true. This is really one of those things I was mentioning before about how understanding the structures and the building blocks lets you play with things because you can choose one and stick with it for the whole story, but knowing how they can interact and how you can use them and how different they are 
means that you can stick them together in different ways to potentially make a story more interesting. Have you ever like done a story mostly in third, say, but with periods of first or omni or something like that? Huh. Do you play with POV beyond alternating? Well, I do when we're talking epistolary because I play with text messages all the time. Oh yeah, and that's like epistolary is a whole other amazing kettle of fish because yeah, and we'll get epistolary into that later. even have a POV? Yeah. I, I love it. Yeah, yeah, and so I and I structure everything in WhatsApp chats okay. so that I can make sure that there actually it is a neutral POV because iMessage isn't as much. Right. Uh, so like that sounds crazy to people perhaps, but it makes sense in my head. Yeah, well, whatever. So, but I have read stories and I'll be honest, these are harder for me to track with emotionally mm. where people jump around without structure, giving me clues to tell me that we're jumping in different people's heads. So like the story will be in third person close with Steve's point of view. And then all of a sudden I will know what Tony is thinking and I don't know what to do with that. So it, it's the... I, I just find it really jarring. Oh yeah, once you, unless you're doing omniscient on purpose, if you randomly switch back and forth, that's actually, that's called head hopping. I think a lot of people confuse head hopping with omniscient. So maybe we should talk about the difference between omniscient narration and head hopping. Yeah, give, give people a breakdown of that. Like, do we have any, can you think of examples off the top of your head of like what would be different? Yeah, so, so fundamentally, the POV should be predictable. It's part of what lets us sink into the story and any unexpected changes will jolt us out of that. So if you're doing alternating, like we talked about, as Flame said, you're gonna wanna switch POVs at chapters or sections or however you divide up the story. There needs to be a cue to the reader that the point of view is about to switch. If you're in one person's head for say three chapters and then halfway through the fourth chapter, you suddenly jump into someone else's head, it's not just gonna be confusing, it's also going to be, um, it's gonna push the reader out of the story because they're gonna have to stop and ask some meta questions like, wait, how did they know that? Whose head am I in? What's happening? And you never want to push a, care, a reader into meta unless you're doing that on purpose. This differs from Omni in that in Omni, you're making the conscious choice to constantly and fluidly move the camera around and dip in and out of people. Honestly, I find balance the hardest thing in Omni. I've only written it a little bit and it was a huge challenge. If you spend too much time dipped into one person, it can feel unsettling when you move to another because it almost got a third close quality. But if you jump too quickly, it can be stuttery. So my hat off to people who managed to nail that aspect of Omni. So there's actually a couple of different kinds of head hopping that happen. But basically the idea is if we're inside one character's head, and that can be first, second, or third, or you know, we're not gonna talk about omniscient at, for the moment. Um, if you're in first, second, or third, but you're still in one character's head, so I'm telling the story from say Steve's perspective. An obvious head hop would be is if within the prose, I tell the reader what Tony is thinking or feeling. Because from Steve's perspective, he won't know that. He could guess that, he could assume it. Tony could seem to be thinking of something. And these are all words you should use liberally when you wanna do that kind of thing. But I can't just say, Steve shook his head and Tony was confused. If I'm in Steve's perspective, that's not gonna work. How do we know Tony's confused? Steve doesn't know Tony's confused. He can guess he's confused, but he can't know for sure. 
So that's a kind of an obvious head hop that people should be aware of. If you tell the reader straight up what someone else is thinking or feeling and you're not in their head, that's going to be a head hop. And I will, that will pull me out of a story so fast that. Yeah, I have a low tolerance for head hopping. I just find it so confusing that I really can't sink into the story. Yeah, I don't know what you're, I don't, because to me, some of it too is I want to know that you know what your characters are doing. And if you're hopping sometimes, if people hop from character to character, I'm not always sure they know either character. Yeah, I can sometimes feel like you're avoiding saying what the initial character was thinking by briefly being in someone else's head. Yeah, and like, um, I don't ever think head hopping is intentional. Like, I really don't. It's just, it, like, it's actually, to me, a sign of unintentional writing, if that makes sense. Yeah, in, yeah, yeah. Sense. I, I would yeah. agree. Um, I can understand, I can completely understand the urge because you want, you realize you want the reader to know that Tony is uncomfortable or Tony's jealous or something like that. Oh, and I still, yeah, and I write it in my rough drafts, let me tell you. Like, yeah. I'll do it and then I have to go back and be like, no, we say appears to. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> by all means, I write that down, have that as a note. You should, you should know what your other character is thinking. Um, yeah. And that's something maybe we could talk about at a later date. But, but when it comes down to the final draft, you always have to be asking yourself, what does my POV character know? And if the yeah. other character doesn't know it, but you still want to make sure the reader does there are so many ways that you can show the reader if you want to show that tony's being jealous have him be snippish and uh, and a little rude maybe condescending to the person that he's being jealous of that kind of thing there's always stuff that you can pour in there so that the reader can figure out what the other character is reading uh feeling but if you jump in there and tell them that's going to be a head hop and then there's also a less obvious but maybe no less common uh, version of head hopping, which is when it's not so much jumping into another character's head to process what they're thinking or feeling, but it is, in a sense, taking the camera out of the head of the person we're supposed to be in. So I would call it a sort of a visual head hop. When you describe something in the prose that the POV character shouldn't be able to see or shouldn't be able to feel happening. So say a pretty common one, um, especially in uh, Smutty Fix, would be if, if the POV character is Steve, to have Steve say Steve's, like from Steve's perspective in third person to say Steve's pupils dilated. You can't feel your own pupils dilating. You don't know when your own pupils are dilating. So if we're in Steve's POV, he would have no way of knowing if his pupils were dilating or not. It's only something you can see in someone else. So he'd be able to see whether Tony's pupils were dilating, but only Tony knows if Steve's pupils are dilating, if that makes sense. Yeah, and I think this happens, the head hopping happens the most often during sex, I think, legitimately. Yeah, it's, it's when I see it the most. And I also see during sex scenes, it's fairly common for a sudden POV change to occur and then for it to go back at some point. And yeah. I'm not entirely sure why that's so common. I think there's something about sex scenes that are, they switch from having an external nature to be to being very internal and they're challenging to write the movements challenging to describe and people fall in that and then they sort of fall back on trying to have both characters have have feelings and thoughts just to give them some meat to work with perhaps there's yeah. also there's also a lot of parts of sexual arousal that are not visibly obvious but aren't necessarily sexy for somebody to talk about so you do have to be careful about when you're describing something that your POV character can see or think or feel versus the things that they cannot see or think or feel. And that's a really good guiding question for however you're structuring your prose and your dialogue. 
ask yourself, where is the camera? And who is the narrator in this scene? And what does the narrator know or see? If you are talking about watching Steve watching Tony put on the suit or the suit building around him, it's a really good thought exercise to even just say, what does Steve know right now about the suit? What does Steve know about how he feels about the suit? What does Steve know? Ask yourself those kind of questions and it'll be easier to stay in one person's point of view. Yeah, that's a great point. And it, I think those are all great questions. I think before we even start writing, it's a great idea to sit down and look at your outline and say, is this a single perspective? Do I want to write this in first, second, third, omni? What appeals to me? And then do I want to do alternating perspectives? Just one character? How, if I do one character, are there any plot points here that are going to be hard to show the reader because they happen off screen for that character? And just make some of those decisions in advance or at least have it on your mind when you start writing so that you can be proactive and work towards the structure that you want it to have. And if you're somebody who doesn't use outlines because that doesn't work for you, this kind of thing would be a good idea to even just have on scratch paper as you are as you are working out. I know a lot of people, and I'm one of them, you just kind of write off the top of your head and you kind of go, but it will, I can almost guarantee you, save you more editing in the meantime and save anybody else more editing later to have an idea of those basics before you kind of get too far into it. Yeah, and like I said, we can, I hope we'll talk about this again, but it is, it is a great creative writing exercise to know everything that your other characters are thinking, even if their POV is never going to make an on-screen appearance for mm -hmm. your piece, because that will give you intention when describing their body language and their tone of voice and how they're interacting with your POV characters. So by all means, think about that. We're certainly not saying, you know, don't go in Tony's head at all. Go spend some time in the other character's head and make those notes and either keep them as comment, comments on your doc or in a separate doc or on scratch paper and let that drive your intention. But then when you're actually coming down to writing and editing, ask yourself those questions about what can my POV character see, experience, feel. It is also not for nothing, participants in bangs, a really good way to add word count asking yourself those questions. <laughs> oh yeah, if you're if you struggle with descriptions, those are, you know, those are great ways to flesh out your descriptions. Ask yeah. yourself those questions and it will only help you sink further into the head you're supposed to be in. And if you think you have trouble with this, if this is something like, if you've listened to this and you're like, oh God, I feel like I've done this before or I'm not sure if I'm doing it, then it's a great idea to when you get a beta reader which every, you know, I, I highly advocate, and we'll talk about that later too. Um, but if you do have someone that's beta reading for you, say to them, hey, sometimes I think I head hop, keep an eye out for it. I don't know if it, you know, I can't always tell when it happens. So I'd love if you could, if you could make those comments. And most beta readers would love to have that kind of guidance of what to look out for. We did ask the community one specific question, and that was which POV they prefer to most often write in. And we did this via Twitter poll so that people could only choose one. And overwhelmingly and not surprisingly to either Ferret or myself, people chose 81% of the vote for third person. Yeah, it's definitely, I mean, I wasn't able to find any actual statistics on this because most people don't tag their point of view. So it's pretty hard to determine what percent of AO3 or what percent of Stony fix on AO3 or Marvel fix on AO3 are in which point of view. But just anecdotally, I think we can all say pretty confidently that 
that that percent probably lines up with how many fics are available, at least in our fandoms, in third person as well. Yeah, and I think like second person came in with 5% of the vote. Mm -hmm. And I think most second person fics in fanfic then would be character and reader. I would, I would assume that would be the majority. I would think so, yeah. Reader inserts. Reader inserts, thank you. That's a much more much more elegant way <laughs> to say what I just said. And then we had some conversation both on Twitter and then in the Discord where we were talking about this. Omni came in second place with 12% of the vote. Hmm. But as people explained what they meant by Omni, it sounded a little bit more to me like third person with multiple characters. Like an alternating third person. Like an alternating POV. And I think yeah. because Twitter is limited and we we're, don't really know how to describe or talk about Omni well, as we covered a couple minutes ago, it's a really kind of amorphous, complicated thing to wrap your brain around. I don't know how often those people actually write an Omni or if they're writing in third person or if I'm misunderstanding. I don't know. It's All those options are possible. Yeah, it's hard to say because Omni really, there's a, a line between omni and rapidly oscillating alternating point of view um and you know some people might define it differently so yeah it's interesting that it got a you know fairly significant portion of the vote maybe we can talk about omni later in more detail and get into how people view it and how they approach writing it uh, and stuff like that yeah, I'd love to hear if after you hear our conversation about Omni, if you disagree with how we define it and why, uh, and kind of walk us through how you see it. I'd love to get some different thoughts on that. So how did first person do? Oh, we got a whopping 2% of the vote. <laughs> but that doesn't surprise me because when we talk about this, like when I've just dropped in on this conversation colloquially and other places on discord or twitter or tumblr mm -hmm. first person gets a bit of a bad rap because people don't like it for fanfic now we tend to like it for other published works like there's yeah, a lot of again um, I, I couldn't find any statistics on this because nobody's really done an analysis of it but again we can say pretty confidently anecdotally that the percent of first person in original fiction in original published fiction is vastly greater than in fan fiction so I think some of that goes to how we interact with the characters in fan fiction. Yeah, I would agree. Yeah, because, I mean, first of all, we're introduced to them in third person. We interact with them in third person or omni in a lot of ways. But also how we all create and craft our characters, if we're writers, or the fix that we choose to read, if we're readers, and a lot of us are both, is almost like a very deeply personal thing, I think. So I jump in my version of Tony's head all the time to write the fic that I write. If I walked into his point of view, first person point of view from somebody else's perspective, I think I would feel a little bit lost. Yeah, yeah, it's an interesting way to to put it. I, I, I definitely think that the fact that the canon is all sort of inevitably third person ha is a factor. And then the question of how you interact with the characters is an interesting one because first person definitely has a different feeling to it, a more internal, a more personal feeling that can make a character feel more real sometimes. But with fanfic, you already have the character and you're trying to, instead of being sort of creative with the character, you're trying to be representative with the character. And that first person can feel sort of 
um, in competition with that representing what already exists. That's an interesting way, the idea between representation and creativity. I think that might be one of the kind of basis of this discomfort with first person for some people. Yeah. And it's, it's not always easy to define. I mean, obviously there's still a lot of creativity that goes into working with these characters because, you know, you have to take them new places and you have to ask yourself where they'd go when they're in these new places. But in terms of designing the characters for fanfic, our, our, our goal for at least a lot of people's goal is to fit them in these cookie cutters they're already in. Yeah, or at least adjacent to the cookie cutters enough that they look recognizable. I, yeah. I think, like, when I describe to people why I read fanfic and not other fiction, like, what the difference is for me, a lot of it's about the investment in character building. I don't have to spend 20, 30 pages getting to know these people. I already know them. So all I need to you to do in your fan fiction is through tags or a couple lines, tell me who they are in this universe you've built, and then I'm good. Yeah. And so, I have the map. I know I have the map already. I don't need to figure out if how the character's going to react to this. If you're setting up a fic in which someone's going to have a misunderstanding, I pretty much already know how Tony's going to react, and I just want to read how you're going to write it. Yeah. Yeah, that also speaks to the two cakes thing, because like, yeah. in a lot of ways, fanfic is already just more cake of the same characters that we want to read about. So, you know, we're sort of already just hitting that button of, I just want to see them more. I just want to spend more time with them. Um, and I guess, you know, first person maybe doesn't feel quite the same. But I, I want to hear from people, you know, there were there were 2% of people said first person. So I'd love to hear more about why they like first person, why it works for them if they write ship fic or if it's like a uh, self-insert or with an OC or something like that, if that speaks more to first person. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Yeah. I didn't even, I didn't even consider that that would make a lot more sense if it with a, with an OC or a self-insert. Yeah. I do think yeah. I've seen some of that. <clears throat> yes. So as always talk to us. Yeah. Hopefully this gave you guys some food for thought, this whole conversation and, and the poll and just getting it out there. But it feels like there's still a lot to explore with the concept of POV, how you use it, the difference between point of view and narrative voice, uh, how we break Omni down to make more sense. So hopefully we'll keep the conversation going over on Discord and on our other social media. If you've got anything to say about this or you're one of the people that voted for one of the less voted options, you want to tell us why. We would love to know. So hopefully we'll see you there. For this episode's Reckless, we asked the Discord server to share their very favorite pod fix. And you'll be able to get the whole list in the show notes. Thanks everyone for sharing what you loved. And please remember that the specific Reckless for topics are Discord-only activities for my sanity, just to be completely honest, and also technological reasons. So if you're listening and you're like, oh, I had things to recommend. Amazing. Join us on Discord for the next time we do this. Outsourcing was really important this time because to be honest, Flame and I don't really listen to Podfix very much. I think they're wonderful, but I have to be in a very specific mood to listen to people talking at all. And yes, I am aware of the irony of hosting a podcast and not liking listening to people talk, but we don't really have to dive into that right now. No, let's not, let's not activate my crippling self-concept. For me, <laughs> it's that I already know what these characters sound like because I get the voices from the movies and I just identify really strongly with that. And so it's kind of important to me to keep those voices that way. 
We do think they're a really important part of fandom though, not just because so many people genuinely love them, but also they make fic accessible to so many more people who wouldn't be able to consume it otherwise or would have to listen to that uh, rather terrible Windows robot voice that can read things to you. So we're really grateful that so many people shared so many wonderful options for you to try. And it, the list is not exhaustive, but a lot of really great places to start. So if you've never tried listening to a podfic, there's ones on there that we'd seriously recommend giving in to go. It's a completely different experience than reading fic and one that might work really well for you. In addition to the rec list, we also asked the server what elements of podfic they liked best. So we did a little survey and the number one result was that people loved a narrator voice that they like. And I think that makes a lot of sense because voices are very emotionally resonant to people. Like for instance, on audiobooks for Audible, one of the reasons that you can return a book, no questions asked, is that you just didn't like the narrator's voice. Hmm. That just makes me feel a little bit bad because, you know, it's not really something you can necessarily change. But there, I, well, you know, there are things about it you can change. Like you can change if you're an up talker and you go up at the end of everything, which mm -hmm. is something that really bothers a lot of people. And that's something you can train yourself to stop doing. True. You can, you can kind of change the timbre of your voice sometimes. Like if you're a really talk like this, that's probably not a narrator voice that people enjoy listening to, but that's something you can practice training yourself out of. So like, you're right. There are elements to people's voices that are unchangeable but there are other elements that you can improve or shift or practice or, I mean, and a lot of us have some time on our hands right now. So <laughs> it might be a good time to get going. So how do you, but how do you know like what it is people are looking for? I mean, who has any idea, right? But I think- I mean, I guess it's a, it's a really personal thing. It's like super personal. Some people, a voice just speaks to them. Like we've even had very different reactions to our two voices from people who listen to the pod. I, we have very different voices and people seem to get different emotions from the two of us. Yeah, and so I would imagine if one of us decided to read an entire pod fic, our voices would resonate for different topics within different fics, if that makes sense. Like there oh, are voices yeah. you probably wanna to listen to more with fluff or voices that are better at expressing angst. I don't know, I'm just guessing here. Yeah, that's an interesting idea. So what were some of the other things people, people liked? They really like sound effects, but everyone was clear that they don't want the sound effects over the words oh, and like masking any of the text. Okay. And then they like a narrator who does voices for each character, but people were also clear that they understand that those are difficult. Yeah, which that must be I know, really hard. Yeah, Alex brought up a couple minutes ago in the interview. Folks liked intro and outro music. That's fun. I like that too. And then I was surprised that only 12 people in our in our little poll, which was about a third of our total server, only 12 folks said they don't listen to Podfix. And I was really glad because Podfix, I always feel fly under the radar mm. and don't get the attention that they honestly deserve because it is so much creativity and labor to produce a Podfix. It is a real labor of love. Yeah. And I've, I've heard from a lot of Podfickers that Podfix by far get the least feedback, the least attention, the least kudos, reblogs, et cetera, from people out of the various creative things that they do. 
probably mostly, you know, fairly because people tend to download them and save them elsewhere and then listen to them when they're hands-free. And you obviously can't hit kudos or leave a comment when you're gardening or whatever. So I think it takes that little bit of extra effort to go back and leave a comment, but I know your local podficker would really appreciate it. So it's a good idea if you've, if you've got the, the opportunity to consider making a list or taking note or making sure that when you go back and download your next podfic that you first go to the one you had before and leave them a comment. You can even hit the kudos button as soon as you decide to download it. If you've already made that much of a commitment, then I'd say they deserve it. So yeah, that's a good practice, a good habit to get into in terms of best fandom practices, I think. Mm -hmm. So all in all, while we are not the best expert on Podfix, we do know it's a big part of fandom for a whole lot of folks. And people on our server would like to encourage you to potentially dip your toe into being a Podficker. If you're interested in doing it, like I mentioned before, some of us have some extra time and we're looking for some new hobbies. A lot of our folks on our server went and got some resources for you. We put them together in a resource list and it will be on the website, things like how to know if it's a good microphone, what software you should use. There's even some stuff on breathing exercises and things like that. So if this is something you'd like to dip your toe into, now is the time. So moving on, we're just going to do a few community talks today because we need time later for Flame to put on her professor hat, which will be very shortly. We really wish we could read everything we get on air every single time, but we really can't. So here's just a few we cherry picked for you. First up is Lola29's lovely comment that she left on the website under the episode. Amazing episode. Again, I loved Professor Flame. This was great to hear about the sociological aspect. Thumbs up emoji. And hearing you both be emotional about the brag bucket also brought some tears in my eyes. So yay for being proud of oneself. Thanks to all the staff for this amazing pod. Lola and anyone else, there's a lot of people who talked to us about how much they enjoyed the kind of more thinky, nerdy aspect of this episode. And we're really glad to hear that because we're trying to walk the balance of entertaining and informative conversations that make us think and also conversations that help us appreciate fandom more. And obviously we'll still be talking about Cox a lot. So kind of walking that balance is something that is on the forefront of our mind a lot. And so thank you to everyone, Lola and everybody else who pointed out that this episode kind of ticked their button that way. We also got a bit of a throwback. Some people are still getting into the pod for the first time and they're listening to episode one, which I can't believe was over a month ago now. Um, But on Discord, M. Samro said, I finally had a chance to listen to the whole first episode of the pod and oh my god, this is everything I ever wanted in a podcast. If this is your starting point, I can only imagine how awesome it's going to get as you get more comfortable with doing it. Thank you. I think we are definitely getting more comfortable with doing it. (laughs) I hope that shows. (laughs) Yeah, I about to say, I hope hope your feelings have come true as you listen to more and more of the episodes. (laughs) We, it's an interesting balance between the stuff that just worked for us right off the bat when we started doing this together and the stuff that we've learned to practice and be aware of and improve on. And then the things that we've tried that just didn't work. (laughs) A lot of lovely people also told us that we kept them company while standing in a lot of long lines this week. It seems like Ferret and I did a lot of grocery shopping with people. (laughs) And we're really grateful to be able to provide that. We're glad that where you were able to take us with you in your pocket 
socially distancedly appropriately. Yeah, the shopping's been a bit stressful, so I certainly have enjoyed having other voices in my ears while I make my way through that particular challenge. We also released a special bonus episode last weekend, our Tipsy Ask Meme, where we uh, had a few and then asked each other questions, or rather Flame asked Ferret questions and Ferret lost the plot every five seconds or so. It was really, really fun seeing everyone's reactions to that. Everything ranging from thinking we were funny to wanting to come have a drink with us, which we kind of hope we could do. So we're sort of thinking about how we might be able to manufacture some sort of party situation with a few alcoholic beverages involved. Or if you just like to be around people who are funny when they're drunk, you can- Oh yeah, it won't be be... mandatory at all, but some of us definitely will be. (laughs) Some of us will be for sure. It would be Eastern Standard Time, so anyone who's getting really excited, just know that as we're plotting, that would be part of it. But we are, in fact, the flare plotting has started. So if you've got ideas for that or suggestions of how we could make it happen, or if you want to be involved in some of the decision-making, we'll It's the kind of thing that we would post uh, questions about on our Discord, so that's a great place to stay involved in any kind of party planning we might get up to. And if you've got questions for future Flare It drunk ask memes or Flare It sober ask memes, just like everything else, you can always leave a comment on the website, hit us up on Twitter, Tumblr, Discord, etc. We want to hear from you. Remember that to comment on the episodes, you have to scroll all the way down past all the segments, and there's a comment box at the bottom. So switching gears now, we're going to move on to our next mini segment for this episode. And uh, Flame's just off getting her professor hat, and she'll be back in just a second with a brief note on fandom history. A mini that is going to be sporadically appearing, depending on how helpful you all find this and how many perhaps other questions that you have, is called, I'm affectionately calling it, I should say, History Corner with Prof Flame. When we first started asking people on the Discord in the early, early moments of this pod what kind of topics they would like us to talk about, the overwhelming cry was for things about fandom history not just about MCU and about Stony, but about fandom in general. And that makes sense because even though there is a wide and beautiful and growing area of academic study about fandom, a lot of academic work is really inaccessible to people who aren't in it. And that is a rant for another time about that. <laughs> but the good news for all of us is that I still get to occupy that space a little bit. And we have some really, really wonderful resource nifflers on our discord that have also helped me find a lot of resources and so we are going to be doing a little bit of fandom history and today i want to go all the way back to the beginning to what is generally agreed upon to be the first really massive commercially intersected fandom and that is sherlock holmes so in the, a lot of the information I got from here is on is in a book called Fic that if you're on our Instagram or our Twitter, you may have seen me referencing. It's by Ann Jameson, and this will be uh, linked in the show notes. Don't worry. It's available in the United States on Amazon, and I would imagine in a whole lot of other places too. It's a trade paperback from 2013, so it's not crazy hard to get a hold of. But she opens her book on fan fiction by saying that, in, that Sherlock Holmes has produced the most spinoffs pastiches, and adaptions in the most media ever. That may seem like a large claim, 
but think about all the different ways that you have seen that story told over the course of your popular culture experience. We'll get more into that in a little bit, but let's backtrack to Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, who was the author of the original Sherlock Holmes tales, which if you've never read the books, or perhaps didn't really interact with the BBC Sherlock, which is the most faithful adaptation recently. The premise is that the books are written from Watson's perspective, and he is telling the tales of the adventures of his roommate, slash whatever else you want to fill in that blank, Sherlock Holmes. Doyle, however, was a serious author. I'm using air quotes around that. He referred to himself as a serious author. And he wasn't interested in being known for these pot boilers, as they were called. He turned a couple out and they took London and then subsequently most of the world that had written English available by storm. Doyle was frustrated though. He said, I saw that I was in danger of becoming entirely identified with what I regarded as a lower stratum of literary achievement. So you can see way, way back before we even got people policing fandom, we have the almost the creator of fandom <laughs> policing fandom. So we've been, we've been maligned for a long time, guys. So out of frustration, he killed Sherlock off in December 1893 when he published The Final Problem. The reaction globally was that people held funerals for Sherlock. Newspapers published obituaries. This was a deal. They had some pictures I found on the internet of people literally wearing mourning badges as they went to work around their suits. Doyle assumed this would lead other people to buying his other works. It did not. Nobody wanted his other stuff. But it did lead them to create their own ways to play with Holmes and Watson. Because that was already happening even before Holmes's death. J.M. Barry, who you may know as the author of Peter Pan, that Johnny Depp portrayed in the movie Finding Neverland, he wrote a parody of Sherlock that Doyle enjoyed so much that Doyle actually referenced it. But things like parodies were fine because that's a lower form of entertainment, quote unquote, than what Doyle was attempting to do in the rest of his works. Fine, I'm rolling my eyes. Parodies, pastiches, writings, people needed these characters to keep going in whatever form they could use to create them. And they saw absolutely no reason to, to not keep playing with them. Even after Sherlock died, fans started asking, what if Sherlock? And they wrote down the answers. I don't know about y'all, but that sounds pretty familiar to me and my soul. Eventually, caving to both commercial and social pressure, Doyle published more tales of Watson and Holmes, thus setting up another mechanism for the proliferation of fan work because the premise of the Holmes books, like I said, is that they're Watson's POVs on cases. And so people could keep quote unquote finding Watson's other writings. Doyle by all accounts blessed this endeavor as long as no one ever made money off his characters. He kind of resigned himself to this towards the end of his life. He told one person in 1911 actually that their Holmes story was great and that they should publish it, but just please change all the names and don't use his characters. If you asked most fandom inhabitants what property they think launched fandom, and I've been doing this over the last couple of weeks, nearly everybody says Star Trek. The answer most likely really is the Odyssey, since people have been fans of art since time immemorial, and we've been retelling stories, and I know we can have that conversation about exactly who owns art when we start to get to Elizabethan times and all of these kind of other things. But the significance of Sherlock really is that it was the first fandom that intersected conversations around commerce, intellectual property, and copyright. 
the law and Doyle say that Sherlock belonged to Doyle. But the fans, they concluded something different. Sherlock and Watson instead belonged to them. Another fun note, the Sherlock fandom actually also includes one of the earliest recordings we have of fan-initiated gender swapping. In the 1950s, there was a, a group, and actually even before that, but there's a group in England and they're still going. They're called the Baker Street Irregulars. They're a, an official fan organization. They have a constitution. It is intense. God love them. I'm here for it. But in the 1950s, Rex Stout addressed the fan group with a story called Watson Was a Woman. So that's one of the first times we have a record anyway of people playing with the genders of, of canonical characters. So Professor Flame, you may be asking, was it always focused on John Locke? Well, dear listener, it was not. The undercurrent of tension and the emotional marriage of the minds that is present between Watson and Holmes may have been there since the earliest days of the fandoms. But most of the early published stories that we would consider fanfic are around cases getting solved. For me personally, this is actually one of the reasons I like to poke around in a few of the modern Sherlock fandoms, the TV ones in particular, like Elementary and House and BBC Sherlock, because they take the mystery seriously, but they also play with the humans. And I really like the human, none of you are surprised, but I really like that balance between the two. In a fandom that is over 100 years old and has been continually active, this is one of those ones where y'all, anything you want, any iteration, any trope, any tag, any universe, you want it, you're going to find it. I'm actually going to throw a few links in the show notes to help you dig further, not only of the fandom, but of a couple of my personal favorite Sherlock fix from Elementary and one from the Sherlock TV show and one from House. So you can see how one fandom can birth vastness even when we're keeping the same two characters pretty much the same throughout all of them. This is a little bit different than when we talk about Marvel because we all have conversations about how 616 Tony is different than MCU Tony and all of those things. You don't necessarily get that in the Sherlock discourse. Sherlock is Sherlock, Watson is Watson, and this is kind of how they work. So Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, we would like to thank you and all of your early fans for both creating this core world and then also expanding it so broadly. We wanna thank the fans specifically for creating a legacy for us, taking a simple story about a man who needed a job who ends up with a man who needed a friend and you helped shape the nature of storytelling. Now, in case any of you want to create to shape the nature of storytelling for yourself, let's check in for this episode's events forecast. Back to tell you all about what's going on, challenge-wise, in a Marvel fandom near you, in our event forecast. A little note before I start with the current events. You'll be able to find everything I mention in this forecast, linked and explained, in the show notes of each episode over on podonthesuit.com. Alright, so now for the fun stuff. The prompts for Lights on Park Avenue Round 8 came out at the beginning of the month. As per the event schedule, you have until April 31st until new prompts are released. This month is National Poetry Month, so Nostalgic at Sea has selected eight brilliant and heart-wrenching poems to inspire us all. Go check them out! The Starbucks Bingo 
as in Bucky and Tony Bingo, is opening signups today for a round starting on May 1st and going till December 31st, with master posts due on January 7th. The Hell Yeah Bottom Bucky blog on Tumblr and Slack launched a community bingo card with classic tropes and Bucky specials for everyone to participate in. The organizers of the Stucky Remix event are looking to set up an all-Marvel ship remix event and are running an interest survey to gauge potential participation. Go fill out the survey if that sounds like your jam, and if you don't know what a remix entails, the mods made sure to include a definition for you in their post. As a reminder, prompting for the Rare Pairs prompt meme is still open, and will stay open until next Saturday. Marie's put together a list of the ships that have been submitted so far, so you guys can peruse and give love to ships you want to appear in there. Go prompt to your heart's content. And if you like multi-fandom exchanges, flash exchanges, and other low-key prompt fests running year-round, be sure to check out the fandom calendar page on Dreamwith. In a slightly different announcement, we wanted to make sure everyone knew about the incredible Steve Tony coloring project that was released this week. Full of art from all sorts of fan artists, it's been great to see people sharing their finished colored works on Tumblr and Twitter. The link to download it is in the show notes of this episode. And a huge thank you on behalf of fandom to Colonel Rogers for coordinating this project. As a reminder, the following events accept signups or fills for the entire duration of their rounds, or close to. The MCU Kink Bingo, the Cap Iron Man Bingo and Comment Bingo, the Cap Iron Man Kink Meme, the Stucky Blind Date, and the Tony Stark Bingo. All relevant info can be found on their respective blogs, which you'll find linked in the show notes of our first episode. This has been your events forecast, delivered by Only More Love. I, or Marie, will see you next episode. Until then, be well, and happy shipping. Thanks, Only and Marie, and thanks to the rest of the podcast staff for all their hard work. Thanks to Alex for chatting with me to Chanimation for the incredible art, and to the server for both the rec list and the podfic resource list. And as always, thanks to you for all your comments, questions, and engagement. This is your fandom podcast, and we want to make it the best it can be for you. Remember, you can comment on the website or get in touch across any of our socials. Keep sending Sony secrets and questions, and we'll see you soon for episode five. You've been listening to Pod on the Suit. Thanks for joining us.